Welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony Caldellis, your host. There are, broadly speaking, two ways to understand the concept of medieval Europe. The first is dominant in practice, at least in Western Europe and the United States. And this one treats Europe as synonymous with Western Europe, and mostly Northern Western Europe. Now, it's hard to justify this practice in theory, given how interconnected this part of Europe was at all times, with the rest. In large part, it stems from modern ideologies that view medieval history as the crucible of the modern nations of Western Europe. And those nations have been able to pour the most resources into fostering medieval research, though the results are often siloed by national historiography and they exclude broader perspectives. It also stems from a lack of study of the languages other than Latin and the medieval Western vernaculars. Now, opposed to this practice is a broader conception of medieval Europe that regards the East and Southeast, including Byzantium, as its integral parts. This conception is stronger in theory because arguably all those regions and cultures were interconnected, but it is more difficult to put into practice. There are few historians who actually do both on equal terms. They're very distinguished historians, and they have written very important books, but they are relatively few. Among the rest, the terms on which such a mutual conversation might take place are unresolved. For example, when Western medievalists look to Byzantium, they generally follow such themes as the Crusades, Western trading routes, feudalism, or relations with the papacy, and they expect Byzantinists to meet them on those terms, which are not always the best terms on which to study Byzantium in its own right. One frontier in particular remains even harder to cross, namely the one that would take us into the Slavic world generally and to the realm of Rus in particular. Through a combination of ideological biases and the mistaken belief that the Rus were somehow culturally or politically subordinate to Byzantium, they are rarely encountered in histories of medieval Europe. Leading the charge to change this is Christian Raffensperger of Wittenberg University in Ohio. What I admire about his work is that he does not merely deconstruct ideologies that create these false boundaries, nor does he simply fall back on the rhetoric of inclusivity, which many will agree with in theory, but then disregard in practice. What he does is demonstrate in concrete terms the links between the Rus and the rest of medieval Europe. In his most recent book, The Kingdom of Rus, he argues that this realm was not only a major player in its own right, but was regarded in medieval times as a peer polity by the kingdoms of Western Europe, and so it should be treated by modern historians. Here is my conversation with Christian Raffensperger. Hello, Christian, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So in many quarters of medieval studies, one often hears calls for inclusiveness, right? So for creating a larger Middle Ages, uh, a, a broad, big tent kind of Middle Ages. And um, the, the series in which you published this book, by the way, the uh, Arc Humanities Press, the Past Imperfect series, that's, that's one of those places and is actually, you know, positively moving in that direction. But often it seems that that's um, easier to say than to do. And I think a lot of medievalists, like yeah, Western medievalists, once they actually begin to realize, oh, like we have to let those people in, it gets a little trickier. And so when you move past sort of broad rhetorical claims about inclusivity, um, it, it it gets thornier, and I think that you're one of the scholars on the front edge of actually making the case in concrete detail, like looking at a particular case and fleshing out all the historical reasons why this argument for a broader medieval Europe, um, much you know, even a medieval Europe broad, not just medieval world, um, should uh, become you know a normative paradigm. Um, so, this book that you've written is argues that the title of the ruler of Rus, the Knyaz, um, should be translated as king and not as prince or duke, as is usually done. 
Uh, and now, so someone might think at first sight that this is a rather technical point about titulature, but you draw some fairly broad conclusions uh, from it that are not just about titles. So could you just present your thesis in a nutshell, and then we'll talk about individual parts of it. Uh, I would love to, and I can't agree more uh, about your introduction. This situation that we have with medieval globe and global middle ages, which I, I embrace and I'm interested in, has led to a lot of Western European historians thinking, this is terrific, and I'm going to compare France and China and South Asia and England and England and the Indian Ocean coast. And where they draw the line is they're still not interested in Eastern Europe. They're still not interested in Byzantium. They're still not interested in their own neighbors. They would much rather do something that is seen as broad and global um, when they're still not interested in drawing those local connections. So, I mean, this is absolutely something that I've run into. And, you know, you had mentioned that medievalists, uh, traditional medievalists focusing on the West, are not particularly interested um, in looking at other places in Europe. And you and I were on a, a panel together a few years ago, and there was a, a historian of medieval France, and he said flat out, um, I don't see Rus as being part of the same medieval Europe as my France. And, and this is what I'm combating in all of my work. And with Kingdom of Rus, I'm trying to make a bold statement, even in the title, that Rus is in fact a kingdom. And that the titulature issue, that the title of the ruler of Rus is not prince or duke as it was uh, more commonly 100 years ago, but is king – is a way to try and advance that argument into the broader medieval studies world. And it is a small titulature issue in the sense that what does one title matter? But I'm using that title to demonstrate that it was connected into a larger world in especially the 11th and 12th centuries, and that the other polities in medieval Europe at that time recognized it as co-equal, as part of their world, and that we as moderns have lowered that rank and thus created a divide in Europe that didn't exist at the time. Oh, right. So you're saying that as a kingdom, it was recognized as a kind of peer polity by people at that time, and that it's this kind of understanding that Rus was part of this broader interconnected world of you know, Christian kingdoms, that we're not respecting that understanding, right? That our, the, the small Middle Ages or the small medieval Europe that we see in practice is sort of rejects that, um, uh, that tradition. That's exactly right. And if you look at, and, and I've done a little bit of this, a survey of textbooks, um, still the majority of medieval Europe textbooks will deal with only the West. And in fact, I pick on one in particular that's published by Oxford that has a series of, of two-page maps of medieval Europe on which only the left side dealing with England, France, and Iberia is populated. And the whole right side, which is Central Eastern Europe, uh, is blank. Constantinople is the only city in Byzantium. There are no cities in Eastern Europe. There are no entities in Eastern Europe, no polities of any kind. And yet they've taken the, ta the time to do a two-page map but have left it blank. <laughs> and that reflects what's in the text. And the visual for those students is that there's nothing there when, in fact, that's simply not the case. And the primary sources tell us that that's not the case. Right. It might even be better if they had just put dragons there. <laughs> like that I might did, get students more. I did more in a presentation. Put a little, <laughs> yeah. a little dragon instead over of just blank. Just put a dragon. I mean, that might interest more students. You know. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, they want to find out where the dragons from. Exactly. And of course, Game of Thrones is probably the answer. Yeah. So, um, so why is the identity of the Rus realm as a kingdom um, integral to this argument? In other words, let's assume that it. You know, let's call it a dukedom or principality or whatever. Why? Why? Can it be integrated into medieval Europe on those terms? Why, why is it important that, that it be recognized as a kingdom? It certainly could be uh, integrated on those terms if we were willing to try and stretch our understanding of what kings and kingdoms are and what polities are. And among 
experts, this is certainly not as big of a problem. But once we talk about medieval Europe as a whole, you're an expert on the Loire Valley or you're an expert on, um, you know, Cistercians. Talking about all of medieval Europe, we privilege, and especially the way we tell the story to our students, we privilege kings, we privilege kingdoms, and those are important entities that we're then talking about. And so if we've got the king of France, the German emperor, and the prince of Kiev, right? we've got a hierarchical system there in our connotation of what each of those words mean. If we instead are talking about the king of Rus, right now this person is on a level with these other people in Europe. And in fact, what I think we need to do, and I mentioned this briefly in the book, but it, it requires a much larger explanation, is we don't just need to re-envision the titulature for Rus, but for all of these areas of medieval Europe. We've privileged the title of king for certain areas and certain people, and we've taken that title away from others, even though in the medieval period they were given the title of Rex or Koninger in Old Norse, which sometimes translates to king and sometimes doesn't. Yeah, I'd like to talk about this issue of how we translate some of these words um, in a moment, um, because Byzantium is also affected by this. But absolutely, uh, first, just a, a bit of background. Uh, can you tell the story about where this translation of Knyaz as Duke comes from? Because I found this a very fascinating story. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of these interesting historical narratives about how we uh, construct translations over time. And so Rus goes through a series of evolutions over the Middle Ages. And by the early modern period, we see a new polity arising in Muscovy, right, centered in Moscow. And in the 15th and 16th centuries, we see traders arrive actually through the Baltic and through the North Sea who are coming from England. And so these English traders arrive at the Muscovite court and they are writing about it. And by that time, of course, they're writing in their vernacular and they are writing down that there is a chief executive, a tsar, right? And the tsar looks like their queen or their king or an emperor. Under that person are a series of other royals, members of the same royal family, um, but they are subordinate to the Tsar, and they bear the title Kinyas. And so they fit them into their own hierarchical understanding of the world and called them dukes. This then was the title used for a very long time. There's an intermediary title of Veliki Kinyas, or Grand Duke, right? because this is somebody who is above other dukes. In the Romanovs, this is often a close member of the, the royal family. And then we have a very interesting change sometime in the late 19th, probably more the early 20th century, when Duke becomes prince. And I think that this is related actually to the 1917 revolutions, uh, but that also would require a little more scholarship. So when modern scholars are using Kinyas and translating it as prince, or sometimes as duke, um, they're not intentionally, I, I wouldn't say, demeaning the Russian rulers. They are following a very good scholarly tradition of citation. They've looked in the dictionary, and what it says in the dictionary traces all the way back to the 16th century so that we can see it is Duke. Now, right. the 16th century right. term— But by this point, it's an anachronism. The 11th century term. It's an anachronism, sorry, though, right? Absolutely. Yeah. The 16th century term doesn't equal the 11th century term. Right. And even the term prince is, if not an anachronism, it's archaic. It's like, you know, Machiavelli's prince or something like that. I mean, we don't talk exactly. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And a, a professor of mine at the University of Chicago, um, Norman Ingham, used to suggest that Furst, the German Furst, might be a better translation of Kenyas. But uh, to me, that only adds another sense of archaism or difference. And the goal that I have is to try and make Rus as acceptable to the modern European world in general as possible. And so I want to utilize the same language that is being used for elsewhere. Right, and that can't happen if we continue to mistranslate. Uh, this brings us back to the point you made earlier. And I, I was actually struck by the the cases that you present of medieval sources that are mistranslated today. 
Um, can you say a little bit about this? Like, so what what are scholars seeing in the sources, and and what are they turning it into versus what they might have made of it otherwise? Yeah. So what we'll see is in good, I mean, good translations, good edited translations by scholars, um, we will see them utilize the translation of Kenyaz equals Prince or Kenyaz equals Duke. And one of the examples I give is from James Brundage's translation of the uh, 13th century Henry of Livonia, where he does a lot, Henry of Livonia that is, with various Russian rulers, Russian polities interacting with the crusaders in the Baltic, and Every time Henry uses this, he says the Rex, right? He's writing in Latin, so the Rex of this particular place. And Brundage translates it as Rex, but then adds an explanatory footnote each time and says things like, quote, like the king of Polotsk, the king of Gerzika was a Russian prince, right? Or uh, Vladimir was a Russian prince, not a king as Henry calls him. So these kinds of translation issues are intentionally changing what was in the primary source. Henry didn't choose this label randomly, I would suggest, and I have arguments elsewhere about this sort of thing. He's choosing Rex on purpose, and we then, as modern scholars, are altering his intent. Yeah, in this case, it's not even the... It's, he's not even seeing Knyaz and translating it as Duke because that's what you find in a dictionary. He's actually seeing Rex, which should be translated as King, right. and is translating as if it were Knyaz. Like, right. as if the Knyaz of the dictionary. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he's looked in a history book and he says uh, he finds that uh, the rulers of Rus are not kings, they're princes. Right. Well, okay, so that's ideology at work. Like, you can see it, right? In the, in the philology. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. So let's go back to the beginning a little bit and talk about the, the big picture. Um, so how was the idea of, quote, medieval Europe created? You you talk about this um, in the book um, a, a little bit. Can you just get a broad outline of roughly where the medieval Europe, the small medieval Europe comes from? So my idea about this is that this arises out of a an idea in the anglophone world in particular of tracing where we come from and so english scholars and later american scholars are looking at uh, the idea of where those particular places came from they're following in a tradition that is uh, what we would typically call western civilization of you know greece to rome and then well, something happened. We don't know. It's a dark ages. But then the light returns in the Renaissance, and it progresses to this amazing city on a hill, which is America eventually. And so I think the medieval period is a way to create that hole or to fill that hole of what's going on. And what they fill it with is England, uh, because that's largely uh, where these scholars are focused on. France gets a little bit of an overlap in this. The papacy is related, of course, because of the prim uh, primacy of the church, and then, of course, we have to preface Henry VIII. But the rest of medieval Europe is not particularly dealt with. And I talked to Central European historians, and they certainly feel the same way. They're fighting the fight to try and get included. Iberian historians over the last 20 years have won that fight, and Iberia is regularly included. But Scandinavianists also feel excluded, and I certainly know that Byzantium uh, gets its own separate venue, but it's not included in those narratives of that, of that small medieval Europe either. Right. I mean, Byzantium is a rather special case. Um, it's interesting what you say about uh, Iberia. Um, but I, I get the sense that the Scandinavians by this point have claimed a pretty large share of the medieval pie. Uh, if you look at the reviews coming out, um, you know, the, the medieval review, you know, the, you, you get those online reviews. So yes. many of them are about Scandinavian or, you know, Old Norse or, you know, so... I think they might be doing okay. But Central Europe, you're right. I mean, like even Germany might be considered a little too, I don't know, Eastern. <laughs> yeah, for some, certainly. And it, it seems to then, like Byzantium, like Eastern Europe, generate its own kind of silo of scholarship. 
where people are reading and talking to each other, but they're not interacting in a larger medieval European community of scholars. Right. So there, there are teleological issues. That is, we have to tell a story that gets us from, you know, point A, which is either Greece or whatever, to, you know, the modern Western world, the United States or whatever, wherever you are. At the same time, there are also the national narratives that need to be accommodated within there. Like we talk about France and England, even sometimes, you know, Italy, uh, preferably North Italy, um, even though this isn't exactly reflect the medieval realities. Um, but are you saying that like the Rus are excluded simply because they're irrelevant to those stories or are there actually positive reasons why those stories might want to exclude them. Yeah, I don't think they are irrelevant to those stories. I think they're actually part of a lot of the medieval stories, and we've excluded them for a variety of other reasons. And, you know, I often pick on the Byzantine Commonwealth, and and, um, you and I have talked about this and published on this in other venues. Um, But I recently went back and read for a different project the the original uh, edition of the Cambridge Medieval History, which started being published in the early 20th century. And Byzantium is consigned to one volume in that, and uh, Rus is one chapter (laughs) in that volume. And basically, it just deals with the conversion of Rus, uh, pardon me, the foundation of Rus by Vikings and the conversion of Rus to Byzantine Christianity, and then that's it. It's basically Rus is part of the Byzantine world. So Obolensky wasn't operating in a vacuum when he put that out in 1971. This was already an idea that was pretty firmly established in the medieval European scholarship at that time. And I think part of it, honestly, I think part of it is a language issue. Um, You know, I say in the book that Chris Wickham, in his fantastic uh, Framing the Early Middle Ages, says right out, I'm not going to deal with the Eastern European stuff because I don't have the languages. And yet he utilizes Arabic sources in translation. I'm reading a really interesting book uh, right now by another Oxbridge person who says the same thing. Um, I'm going to talk about all of medieval Europe, but I can't really talk about Eastern European stuff as much because I don't have the languages. So there is a a, a real practical issue as well in trying to create a unified medieval Europe, and that is if you're reading documents in Latin and you're an Anglophone scholar, you're going to privilege the Latin writing world. Yes, uh, and so let me... You know, put in a plug for translations. <laughs> That's why they exist, right? So that we can gain access to other cultures that, you know, without having to learn the languages, at least sufficient to, you know, pull them into the story. You don't have to do like very detailed original work in them. Uh, but, you know, as a translator myself, I mean, I, I totally appreciate how, how, you know, the quantum leap in understanding that you can get even through translations, especially of Arabic sources. I read a lot of them in translation. Um, yeah, I agree. And the yeah. DOML series um, is is terrific for that. We've got texts that are coming from all over that are published in terrific editions with facing page translations so you can check words. I, I really like all of that. And not only is it useful in the classroom, uh, but as you note, it's useful for scholarship. I would love it if Slavic things were included in that. So why do you talk so much in the book about uh, marital histories and, and Rus women specifically? Uh, well, okay, the easy answer is because that's something that I'm really interested in and I happen to have done a lot of work on. But one of the reasons that I'm interested in it and I've done a lot of work on it is because I think it represents a real tangible connection to what's going on in the rest of medieval Europe. And those are connections between Rus uh, and France and England and Hungary, all of those other places. Women in particular are vital to this endeavor and have largely been left out of our narrative. I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't invent these marriages or, or discover them in an archive where they'd been buried. People knew about these marriages for a long time. And uh, George Vernadsky, uh, in his classic Kiev and Russia book, mentions these marriages and he does it in a sentence. And then he's done. And largely, I think this is because he was conceiving of these marriages as involving women, and those women left. They left his narrative focus of Russia as he conceived of it, and thus they were out of his story. But by privileging the story of women in medieval Europe, as has been done 
over the last 50 years, um, what we can see is that those women play a major role and that they retain ties to their natal families. They connect back to their parents. They connect to their brothers. And we see that in uh, when they travel home after marriages end. We see that anecdotally when they are interacting with one another, there's a, there are great stories about um, Russian uh, sisters who marry into the kingdoms of Norway and Denmark and who work together to help their sons. So there are connections that are made there that we have historically ignored. Plus, not only are these women empowered, but they take with them a whole entourage. And so it's not just one woman from Rus. It is the woman who is a princess who becomes typically a queen who is at the center of the royal court. She has a confessor. She has guards, she has maids, she has an entourage around her. So uh, we can maybe better conceive of these marriages as embassies of Rus in the capitals, in the bedchambers of these foreign polities. Yeah, there might even just be a straightforward gender dynamic here. Sort of, uh, when, you know, you can as assume, so historians can assume that, well, the women are subordinate in the marriage and... Uh, because medieval women are, and therefore uh, subordinate people can't change the the structure and dynamics of a paradigm. Uh, so just because some Rus women come into the picture doesn't mean that we have to change the the structures of how we understand the relationship among kingdoms. Uh, right, except that they're not subordinate. No. And in another of my uh, books, um, I talk about the example of, of naming and demonstrate that women are uh, vital in giving names and retaining family names uh, throughout uh, both the Russian women who go into the rest of Europe and then women from elsewhere who come into Rus. And we see those women, their names, their family names become powerful and they're markers of identity. So it's not just, I'm a man, I'm a member of my male clan. Um, there are men who are claiming names from their maternal ancestry as well. Right, right. And yeah, and you have some stories and narratives in the book about um, some of these women and uh, how, you know, what an active role they took in some of the politics in Western Europe, like, uh, you know, with uh, side, you know, taking sides in disputes between the Pope and various kings and and, and playing a very important role in that. That's right. And, you know, the investiture controversy between, uh, generally depicted between uh, Henry IV of the German Empire and Pope Gregory VII and then Pope Urban II, um, is told in almost every medieval Europe textbook. But the story of Henry IV's wife, Yevpraxia, the Russian princess and empress of the German Empire, is never told. Right? That's not something that, that's ever mentioned, the fact that she marries Henry IV and then leaves him, and she then goes around and speaks at uh, the papal synod. She speaks at councils of bishops against her husband, utilizing this papal script saying that he was a Nicolaitan, right? this member of this deranged sect, a sect that committed all kinds of sexual depravities. And maybe she is just following the papal script. That seems most likely. But the sources say she is going, she is speaking, and yet that is never really discussed, and her position is minimized in, in all of the scholarship on that. Right. So pulling these threads together, I'm just kind of trying, sort of thinking aloud here, I'm trying to imagine how one might redraw the 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 boundaries of medieval Europe. Because So you're proposing some... Uh, mechanisms by which to do it. So, for example, uh, you know, w which rulers were considered peer kings, um, you know, by each other, uh, even in Western Europe. So if they considered the um, the Knyaz of the Rus as a peer rex, um, another um, framework might be a marital um, relations. So who was intermarrying with whom, uh, you know, where was it desirable to obtain brides from? So if you factor these and other things in as well, so how would you envisage a new medieval Europe? Like where would you draw the boundaries? 
I think I would need to utilize some element of Christian Europe as that definition. And the boundaries could be um, fluid based upon the expansion of Christianity, but it would be inclusive of Scandinavia down through Western Europe, Central and Eastern Europe, uh, through Iberia and into the Mediterranean. And I certainly would include uh, Byzantium, the medieval Roman Empire, in all of this because they are the empire par excellence that is being appropriated by all these other groups to try and find some legitimacy for themselves. Now, I've been criticized in uh, my first book, Reimagining Europe, for stopping at that eastern border of Europe and not engaging with the nomadic groups on the steppe or with the Middle East. And it's true that there are trade ties, there are other ties that go there, um, but we don't see the same level of contact in terms of marriages, which as you noted is one of my foci, um, but also we don't see the same religious contacts. So I, I think that that's how I would conceptualize Europe is really a lot more like what we talk about as, I know continents are debated, but as the continent of, of Europe. Well, or at least your criterion is a religious one. I mean, talk about you know Christian Europe or Christendom um, I mean that is a criteria uh, you know geography is sometimes invoked but um, just to be honest I've never actually seen Europe as a continent it doesn't look like a continent to me uh, if you just look at it on a map and you weren't told in advance that it's a continent you, I don't think that's a natural response to the map um, oh, it certainly isn't. I mean, we homeschooled my daughter for a year, and and I did some geography with her, and she said the same thing. Right. She was she was six, and was like, I I don't see why Europe is not Asia. Exactly. It's just an extension of Asia. Uh, that I think it's pretty clear that this, for political or ideological cultural reasons, Europe wants to call itself a continent, probably specifically in order to separate itself from Asia. Um, now. I don't know if you're like Herodotus. Do we blame the Greeks for that? Is that what we blame? Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, if you're Herodotus, you know, maybe it makes some sort of sense um, because you know there, there's a Persian Empire over there, and over here there isn't. <laughs> but when you when you figure the entire northern landmass into the picture in a medieval context, I just I don't know. I I don't because they didn't know how how far up that extended. Um, I don't know. No, and if you look at the way the geographers try to do it, it's totally gerrymandered. It's the Black Sea, but then where's the Caucasus, and then the Ural Mountains. But the Ural Mountains are like mountains we have here in Ohio. I mean, they're not, they're not even the Appalachian Mountains, right. or much less the Rockies. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the, the titles a little bit some more, because you know, as a Byzantinist, I I sometimes face a similar issue, but in in some respects, it's the exact opposite issue. In other words. You're dealing with a royal title that's been sort of demoted in the scholarship. And sometimes I feel that in talking about the Byzantine emperor, we really elevate th that position whose core title, Vasilevs, just means king, not just to like emperor, however we understand that difference. And often I'm pretty fuzzy about how that's meant, but into something way more exalted. Um, like the, you know, the pater familias of some, you know, uh, family of kings, right? Where the, the Rus Knyaz is just like a vassal because the Byzantine emperor is so exalted. And, and you know, honestly, the, the, it's difficult to explain, like point blank, if you, if you want to embarrass a Byzantinist, you can ask, well, what is it about the Byzantine title that conveys the sense of emperor? <laughs> Because, like, I'm not saying it's an inappropriate translation. Like, there are many contexts in which that makes some kind of sense, but we haven't actually explained what that sense is. And it's difficult to pin it down. Like, so show me exactly where do you see that? Because imperator and imperium is one of those Latin terms that the Byzantines never picked up. Um, and besides, even imperator is not what conveys the sense of what we think of as emperor to the Roman emperors, that was more like, you know, either Caesar or Augustus or depending on them. Anyway, so I think that I'm dealing with a sometimes overvalued title and you're coming at this from a title that's been sort of demoted in the scholarship. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I mean, I think that there's evidence of the appropriation of basileus um, elsewhere in Europe as well. I, I mentioned in another publication about Ofa of Mercia, who rules at the same time as Charlemagne. He calls himself basileus anglorum. So, I mean, he's mixing this Greek word with these, uh, this Latin genitive to be the king of the Angles or the emperor of the Angles. And yet, again, in translation, he's always a king. He's never he's never an emperor, um, even though he's trying very hard to take this title. So I, I think that we are projecting our modern ideas back onto the past to make things the way we think they are. And for the Byzantine Empire, right, I mean, we might have to go back to decline and fall for setting up some of these ideas about Caesaropapism and the uh, paterfamilias of an entire uh, Eastern Hemisphere world or something like that. Right. So just to be clear, the, the Rus king is not a vassal or client of the Byzantine emperor, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, they, don't and, follow, oh, they don't follow orders. Not a bit. They're not even good uh, Orthodox Christians, if we're going to utilize this as a terminology for the 11th and 12th century. I mean, the the um, Metropolitan Ioan II, who is Metropolitan in the second half of the 11th century in Rus, uh, he says, you know, you are marrying your daughters to these not acceptable people, and there's no spe specificity there. So the idea is that they're marrying them to Latins. Which they are, and they're marrying Latin women into Rus, and this is fine. But he, who is directly appointed by Constantinople, doesn't really care for this in the slightest. So they're not following those ecclesiastical edicts in that way either. Right, right. I don't know of any cases where they followed any kind of order. Uh, no. No, no. Um, no, I mean, it could go back to Olga, who supposedly tells the emperor, uh, no, thanks, I'm not going to send you the things we agreed upon. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned in the book that the Byzantines are, are a big part of the problem or part of the problem of how we misunderstand the, the Rus uh, title. Um, yeah. Can, can you explain what you mean? Yeah, and so I don't actually mean the Byzantines as much as I mean the conception of Byzantium that you and I are already talking about, which has been codified most recently by Obolensky, because if Rus is part of the Byzantine Commonwealth, if Rus is part of this sphere of Byzantium, who would know it best? The Byzantines. So if we're looking for the title of Rus, what do the Byzantines call it? What is the first question that we should be asking? And that answer is Archon, right? Now, Archon is, as you know better than I, right, kind of a generic title for a ruler. We see it as uh, the ruler of Slavs in the Peloponnesus. Occasionally you get it for somebody in Kherson. Um, but this is a title that is not particularly illustrious. It's not the Greek version of Rex. It's certainly not Basileus. Um, and so it's not a great title. But if we don't accept the Byzantine Commonwealth, if we don't accept that the Byzantines know the Rus best, and they don't, um, then we look to the people who do know them the best, which is the Latins, and we look at the titles that they give to those Rusian rulers. So that's really what I mean about how the Byzantines, or really this conception of the Byzantines, causes one of our big problems with understanding medieval Rus. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, Archon is a generic. Um and I think the, they used it. Some the Byzantines used it sometimes just because lacking of any, anything more specific or unwilling to say anything more specific. Uh, it just meant you know ruler. You know, go make of it what you will. Uh, uh, a question about the the title knyaz um, and about how it functions grammatically. Because um, so in in the Roman context, uh, you know, one is a you know rex or a vasilefs of a group of people. Uh, the Byzantine emperor, for example, was always the Vasilevs of the Romans. It didn't make much sense to them. Like in a Roman context, it doesn't make sense to speak of a of a king who's just a freestanding, you know, independent, freelance kind of king. Um, that, and this is in contrast to um, antiquity. So in the Hellenistic period, all of those those Hellenistic kings were usually just king simply, right? Like King Philip or King Ptolemy or whatever. They they weren't the kings of a people. Does Knyaz, is Knyaz tied to uh, a, a specific constituency, whether, you know, defined territorially or ethnically or however? 
Yeah, absolutely. So you have to meet two criteria to be a Kinyaz. One is you have to be a member of the ruling family, this larger clan that's typically called the Rurikids or that I called the Volodymyrovichi. But not just that. You also have to have possession of a territory. So there is no Kinyaz without territory. Uh, one of the examples I give in the book is the idea of the modern uh, English Prince William, who was prince the day he was born, but he also is titled now Duke of Cambridge. So he is a prince because he was born into the royal family, even if he ruled over nothing. But now he is also the Duke of Cambridge. In Rus, there is no Kinyaz who doesn't have a town or a territory. And the town is part of the issue for the titulature because a lot of historians will say, well, they're just the ruler of that particular place. Well, yes, they are. But where is the center of any power of any non-itinerant, any sedentary ruler? It's in a town. So they are the ruler of that particular place. The implicit statement is, and the surrounding area. Right. Okay. Right, so you never have someone who who says, oh, I'm a Kinyaz, and you say, of what? And it's like, well, I don't know yet. <laughs> right. I, I'm a Kinyaz because I was born into the family. It doesn't happen. There's no Kinyaz without portfolio. Right, okay. Well, that's, that's interesting. Okay. I mean, that grounds it in some very specific political arrangements in that territory. I mean, it's not a... Right. right. And and then we have a hierarchical relationship that is not expressed in our in our sources um, as clearly as we might like. And one of the things that I think that we really crave, uh, especially in the Anglo-American world, is an explicit sense of hierarchy. Who reports to whom? And, you know, org charts and businesses are, of course, representative of this. So there are a lot of people in Rus who have the same title, Kinyaz. And this has given rise to the idea that there can only be one monarch, right? And so only one person can be the king. And yet, this is what I was saying earlier about how all of titulature, I think, needs to be revised. When we look elsewhere in the medieval world, we see exactly the same example. And Scandinavia is the uh, – or exactly the same situation. And Scandinavia provides us with a really good example because there are all kinds of people in Scandinavia who bear the Old Norse title Koninger. And yet when we see translations – well, even barring that, looking at the Old Norse so sources, there are Koninger who report to other Koninger. Right? So they are subordinate even though they have the same title. What makes them subordinate? A whole variety of things that they know at the time because these are personal relationships that don't need to fit into a larger organizational chart. When these are translated, the English versions of these sources have a hard time dealing with the fact that these people have the same title. So they'll call them king. They'll call them chieftains. Um, and Often, the ones that get the title king are the ancestors of the ones who will unify realms like Norway or Denmark or Sweden, and they'll trace back that descent to find that family, and they'll give that person the title king, and the others are chieftains. The same way in Rus, where we will have uh, the title, which is anachronistic for my period of Grand Prince, traced back for the rulers of Kiev. I think that the people at the time, the rulers at the time, knew how to differentiate one from another. If you ruled in Kiev, you were the primus inter pares. You were the ruler of Rus. If you ruled in Novgorod, you weren't, but you were still a Kinyas. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, I think this goes way back. I mean, in some traditions, uh, I think you find the same sort of thing among the, uh, the, the Goths in the 4th century. Uh, and the other Germanic groups that uh, the Roman Empire was contending with, um, they have all of these little, you know, rexes and reges, and they uh, they sometimes unite and appoint a chief among them. And then how do you call that person? And occasionally we have the term eudex or judge for the over king. I mean, but it's a similar kind of situation where you have all of the uh, little kings and a big guy in it. Um, Anyway, this, this might be a f very common phenomenon. 
I think it really is. And uh, Seth Richardson writes about Babylon, and he talks about how Hammurabi gets called the Babylonian emperor and the ruler of the Babylonian empire. And yet in the documentation, he's the ruler of the city of Babylon. Right. With that, but it turns out very little sway outside of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but then these, this, the more successful dynasties in the long term then retroactively project their genealogy of supreme kingship back into the past. And, exactly. that, and we're looking to trace that line of well, who is the real king. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And the Capetians are a classic story in this. Exactly. I mean, they are ruling very little at the end of the 10th century. And yet the way they talk about it is that they are the Rex Francorum. They're the ruler of all the Franks. Right. And asking for Byzantine brides. Right. <laughs> and, and even calling the, the Byzantine emperor the emperor of the Romans in order to get the bride. Uh, <laughs> um, so, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, I know. Even swallow that bitter pill. Um, so jumping ahead now, um, you say that, that this whole situation, so the, the more integrated medieval Europe that you describe, that integrated through ties of, of kingship, recognition, and marital ties, that this begins to, to fracture in the 13th century in particular. And you imply that, well, that's a different paradigm from here on things get a little bit um you know more more contentious and this medieval europe kind of breaks um could, could you say a little bit about what changed at that time yeah absolutely um so i think the 13th century is really decisive in a whole lot of ways and while i think the schism of 1054 is n not something that most people care about and in fact has quickly healed um, the sack of constantinople in 1204 a lot of people care about and it's after that that the rus really seem to start to realize that oh we're not just christian like the people to our west we're a different kind of Christian. And this happens relatively quickly because already by 1222, there are crusades being called against the Rus in the Baltic. So they're already being defined as other uh, by the early part of the 13th century. The middle of the 13th century, of course, brings rack and ruin with the invasion of the Mongols, the sack of Kiev, um, and the sack, of course, of Hungary and Poland. But because of the Mongol retreat uh, for a variety of reasons, in environmental, the death of Ogadai, um, they settle on the steppe south of Rus, north of the Black Sea, and Rus becomes part of the Mongol world empire. Hungary and Poland do not. And so this line is, is doubly drawn, not just Latin Christian versus Orthodox Christian, but part of the Mongol world, not part of the Mongol world. So I think the double drawing of these lines is important in dividing Rus. But we can look, and I have a, um, a web map that depicts these marriages at the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute's website, their MAPA project. And one of the things you can do on the map is you can uh, do a little time slider and select what period you would like to look at. So if you slide it to just look at the 11th century marriages of Rus, they're almost entirely towards the west. You've got marriages with France, with Hungary, with the uh, Anglo-Saxons. They're towards the west. If you just look at the 12th century, that set of marriages shrinks it's Scandinavia, it's what we call Central or East Central Europe, um, a little bit into the Caucasus even. And so we're already seeing a smaller uh, contraction in the 12th century. And I think in the 13th century, that gets even more so. We see the center of Muscovy that I was talking about before begin, not so much with Moscow by that time, but with Vladimir, uh, Vladimir Suzdal in particular. And those people are marrying into local people, into local families. They're not creating broader dynastic marriages. Novgorod is going in a different direction. Uh, Galicia Volinia in the southwest part of Rus is going in a different direction entirely, and they are deeply enmeshed in the politics of Hungary, of Poland. And so 
the Rus that is in Galicia Volinia in the southwest still maintains the ties in the 13th century with a larger medieval Europe, but it's that central Europe or that east central Europe that they are really deeply tied to. Right, right. Uh, well, Christian, I, I have to say, I mean, I, I, I support your, your, your initiative in, in pushing for a, a more inclusive and a broader medieval Europe or just Thank medieval you. world. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I would very much like to see that happen in practice and not just in, um, in rhetoric. And uh, th- though, you know, I'm, I'm, my reservations are um, that, that, that I, I would not want that to happen on Western medieval terms, right? Like, like we'll let you into the club, but you have to do these kinds of things or you, right. it has to be done on, you know, on these terms. Um, and that, that's, that's going to be tricky, but I, I think, um, in, in, in your books, you're, you're actually finding a, a good balance. I mean, I, you're finding a way in which Western medieval historians can, you know, recognize the Rus as something that they can integrate into their work. Thank you. Yeah. And so, I agree. And I think what it requires is a reconception conceptualization of a lot of the pieces and I'm trying to do that for Rus you certainly are doing that for the medieval Roman Empire um, and what we need is we need scholars who are willing to engage with those reconceptualizations and not uh, older ideas or projections of uh, nationalist ideas where it's France and England if we're instead dealing with the the medieval realities I guess we could call them then we've got a medieval Europe that we could talk about yeah let's hope I mean the century is young um, so uh, all right. Uh, uh, thank you, Christian. In closing, I'll ask you a question I ask all of my guests, which is to recommend two books that you've read that are not necessarily on Byzantium or your field of expertise that uh, you think your uh, our listeners uh, would benefit from. Okay. Um, two books. Okay. One of them um, is a book called Craft, but it's C-R-A-E-F-T. And it's by an English archaeologist named Alexander Langlands, and it is about how things are made. Uh, And this is something that I read with great interest um, in the last, uh, I guess it was the end of last year, because one of the things that I do is text. One of the things I don't do is material culture. And so I'm trying really hard to learn a lot more about material culture. And this talks about how you thatch a roof. Right? And huh. how you weave willow branches and how you actually have to plant the trees and tend the trees to get the willow branches to weave into these things. And it's so fascinating the way he talks about it. And it's part of the lived experience of the people that I read about all the time, but who I don't know about. And so I thought that was really interesting. That's a great suggestion, uh, especially now that we're talking about, you know, the material turn even in the humanities. and Right. Yeah, very much. Um, the other one I'm going to cheat a little bit, and it's historical fiction. Um, and it's an older book, but Michael Chabon, who's a, a well-published, famous author, oh, yeah. um, wrote a book called Gentlemen of the Road a number of years ago. And it's about two adventurers in the Khazar Empire of the 10th century. Yes, I've read that. Have you read it? Yes, yes. And I think this is just such an interesting book for for kind of similar reasons, actually, because they uh, encounter these two main characters, um, Abbasids and Khazars and Byzantines and Rus. They talk about the language issues. They talk about what it's like to travel from place to place. They talk about the monetary issues and dirhams. And he's pretty good about the history. Yes, and the, the Khazars are just inherently fascinating, you know, what with their Judaism and all of that going on. Absolutely, yeah. I am I'm really fascinated by the Khazars. Yeah, I read that a while ago, but uh, now that you've just mentioned it, all of these scenes from the book just have flashed, uh, you know, before my eyes. Anyway. All right. Uh, thank you, Christian. Uh, uh, this has been wonderful. Great. Thank you very much for having me, Anthony. I appreciate it. It's been fun to talk. Yeah, my pleasure.